0: So, this episode was supposed to come out a couple months ago after the first Laura Kirby interview came out. But right after we were done recording with Laura, my computer crashed before I could back up the episode. Well, a few nights ago, my computer miraculously started working again, despite sending it to multiple experts and no one being able to figure it out. So, long story short, you're getting your second Laura Kirby interview now. I hope you enjoy it. This one was more focused on her personal life and her own journey into the world of autism and PDA about her own diagnosis and being part of a neurodivergent family. So I hope you enjoy it. Oh, and one last thing. Oh, one more thing. Her book is titled The Educator's Experience of Pathological Demand Avoidance. All the links to stuff will be in the description. We tried saying the title of the book in the podcast and Laura and Stacy ended up saying it at the same time so you couldn't actually hear the title. So there you go. The Educator's Experience of Pathological Demand Avoidance. Go check it out. If you're an educator, if you're a parent, you'll love it. And I hope you enjoy the episode. And we are live back another episode of Shifting the Narrative on Everything Autism. I'm Torrin Kearns and as usual I'm joined by the Autism Sage yourself, Mama Badden. How are you? I'm good.
1: Take two. I'm
0: <laughs> doing very well. We're supposed to lie and act like we do these all in one take. And nothing I know. Ever goes I can't around. help
1: myself. I can't help myself. So I am doing very well, and I'm excited to be hosting our first guest. With me um, sitting in Mexico, and,
0: and introduce our guest because on take one we didn't even do that. You we just went straight into it. Oh my gosh!
1: I'm so I just think all the listeners should just vicariously see. So Laura Kirby is back, um, the author of this wonderful book on PDA for educators, and I'm excited because school's starting in the states. Laura, what about the UK?
2: Is it no, we've we've got about another three weeks. So that we we start again on the first of September.
0: That's about what we have too. That's we start usually first week of September. It used to be like the first Thursday of September. I don't know if they still do that, but
2: for public Yeah, no, A few weeks left. Which is nice. All
1: right. Well, I'm excited. And Torin, you kind of had a direction you wanted this podcast to go in. So I'm gonna let you take the lead before I start talking
0: <laughs> well so on our first episode we did a lot about pda which you that's one of your specialties but i really want to get a little bit more about your journey because you mentioned some stuff mm-hmm. in the first episode that we didn't really have time to put into the first episode otherwise it would be like a joe rogan episode it would be three hours long so i'd like to go into it here so i guess my first question is what got you into this field of working especially because you work you work a little bit with children, but you work mostly with like, adolescents and secondary education, right? What got you into that particular field? Because people tend to focus on autistic children, like youngsters, and not a little bit older. So, so so what mm. brought you to that place?
2: Um, so I, it, it will be 22 years in September that I first started teaching. Um. So I was in my late 20s then and I had I'd always known I'd wanted to teach, like from when I was really young. Um and I kind of veered off that track. I did a degree in psychology and then um left university and just kind of fell into some really like just jobs that just weren't for me at all. I didn't, they weren't really related to psychology, they were sort of sales and marketing type jobs that you know good good money but just absolutely hated it I had no sense of purpose I got no no like enjoyment from my work at all um and then actually I had a bit of a, a life-changing moment around that time when a, a friend of mine um very sadly uh died uh, um very very suddenly just before his 30th birthday and that was a bit of a wake-up call for me I just thought life is too short to spend time doing something that you don't enjoy so what i really really wanted to do was teach um so i looked at different teaching options obviously going back to university there's a there was a scheme running at the time in the uk called the graduate training program where you could go and work in a like a mainstream school and um they would sort of train you up to be a teacher and then you'd work in that school. And then I was talking to um, a friend who worked in a local college, um, but she worked in what, what we call here the supported learning department. So in that college, it was mainly 16 to 19 year olds, um, but they all had additional needs and they were mainly autistic, ADHD, um, children that were in, young people that were in care young people that had been out of the school system for a long time and then come back in and she said Laura I think you would be perfect like why don't you consider that um and honestly I walked into this classroom on my first day and it was just like this is what I'm meant to do like I just loved it from the moment I set foot in the classroom um and people would say to me oh it must be such a challenging job it must be so hard such hard work and I was like do you know what it's not It's just..." it's just like it just came so naturally to me um so i was at that college for a few years and then i i left when i had my first son and then i went back to a more local college and it was whilst i was in that college that i specialized in autism so um, an email went round to all the staff in the college like literally thousands of staff saying we're we're looking for somebody to become a, a there had roles for various champions. So there was an autism champion, a behavior champion, a mental health champion, and i I put my my hat in the ring to be the autism champion, and I got that position, which was kind of again bit of a life-changing moment. um and and I went back to university. I did my postgrad in autism. Um, and then I left that at college and then I became an assistant head and then a head teacher in a, in a specialist school and that's that's when I first came across PDA so as a teacher I've never ever worked in a mainstream setting I've owned I don't know if you call it mainstream in, in the states but we 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 call um a school that isn't a specialist school we just call it mainstream um I've never ever worked in a mainstream setting I've only ever worked in specialist settings um and of course as i mentioned in the book you know i i specialized in autism i went off to this school um initially as the assistant head teacher thinking i know loads about autism i've been working in this field now for years i've got a postgrad in autism um and, and as i wrote about in the book you know i then realized that there were students in my school who were not responding well at all to my tried and tested autism strategies and and actually a lot of the stuff that I was doing was 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 making things worse for both of us um and then that's when I that's when I discovered PDA and and a lot of people parents particularly when they first hear about PDA or they read about PDA they describe like a light bulb moment of of realizing that you know everything that they've been told about their child is is you know it hasn't quite it's either wrong or it just hasn't quite fitted and and I remember um, there was one student in particular in my school um who was amazing and and you know incredibly bright and you know could be the the, 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 the the best person in the world to spend time with and work with or could be you know somebody a young person that I found incredibly Challenging to be with, Um, and I just remember reading about PDA, and it was like somebody had been in my school and observed this student and had written down all their characteristics. So, I left that school just over ten years ago. Um, I, I guess a lot of teachers feel like this. I found working in in even in the specialist school, but working in that education system incredibly frustrating. Sometimes, Um, I felt that it really kind of like crushed my creativity um and actually as a head teacher um I would have days when I barely saw any children or spoke to children I'd be sort of stuck in my office dealing with budgets and data and or or just dealing with stuff that I didn't enjoy like all the horrible I'd be putting out fires everywhere and you know thinking I haven't spoken to a kid for like two days so I, I I left that and that's when I set up PAST, which was originally positive autism support and training. It's now positive assessment support and training. And then five years ago, um, with a very good friend who also worked in that school, who has a very, very similar ethos to me, we set up our tutoring company for children and young people who don't go to school because they, they can't because of their anxiety. And nearly all of those young people are autistic with a PDA profile.
0: Whenever I hear stories like that that come that clearly come from a place of passion, I'm sure Stacy feels the same way. It sort of warms my heart because and I don't mean to throw shade on anybody, but sometimes you'll hear professionals, sometimes parents, and I get it, and they'll talk about like their autism journey, be it themselves or somebody else, and they just sound so tired and so burnt and so negative and downcasted about the whole situation. And it just sort of kills the vibe. So it's great to hear someone who clearly loves what they do.
2: Yeah, I, I I do love what I do, and I'm and I am really I am very passionate about it, and I and I I have a lot of energy for what I do. I mean, people in in the UK, and and I I, I know it's the same not just in America because I speak to American parents, I speak to parents in all different countries. I know a lot of people have a lot of you know, issues with the education systems and and I felt I had to do something about that. So the, the tutoring company that I set up um, is it's quite unique. Like there's not many people in the UK that are running something like this. It is incredibly hard work, like it is incredibly hard work. Um, but it's also I'm also so proud of it because there are children we've we have fifty three young people now in our service. So we started off with with only five um five years ago, um, and and the, the word that I I hear we have regular meetings and we have we have to have um what we call an annual review, which is um. Uh, something that legally we have to run to sort of evidence that we are providing the right support to these young people. And I hear the word transformative. And and that is just amazing when you you talk to parents and they say, you know, like five years ago, my child would not leave their bedroom or five years ago, my child, um, you know, couldn't get dressed five years ago, my child um, you know, was incredibly depressed, or their anxiety was so high that we were dealing with you know violent meltdowns on a regular basis, and these are now children that are excited about welcoming tutors into their home and excited about learning again and 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 I'm you know that's something that I'm really proud of that that we've you know we've we've done that so yeah, and the other reason i I love it so much is is because I'm learning all the time from these young people I was, I was actually talking to my my son and his girlfriend are here this evening and i was I was chatting to to my son's girlfriend before I came on to do this and I was saying that everything that I've written about in in the book is all stuff I've learned through my practice, you know like it's all stuff that I've taught either through things that have gone well but also from things that have gone really badly wrong (laughs) you know like you can learn a lot from your mistakes can't you um but um someone asked me the other day they said where did you learn about PDA I was like from the kids I work with like I didn't do any courses really or, or I mean I've read books on PDA but it all comes from from them which is which is a, you know, it's a lovely gift for them to give me.
1: Yep.
2: I'm with you, it's so nice to hear someone that
1: understands what goes on in my head. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I, I know, like while you were talking, especially about when you mentioned the word transformative and that because Stacy gets a lot of those same comments and mm. she shows it in the Mason times and it's, how can I put this? It's, it's so cool seeing like someone who, has an effect on the world the way Stacy does when it comes to helping parents, helping kids. And once again, I apologize for gushing, but unfortunately, mm-hmm. you don't see it as often as you'd like to see it. So it's, a re- it's mm-hmm. really refreshing to get to see it somewhere somewhere else besides my, my, my podcast host. Yeah. But I, I do have another question. You mentioned in the first episode we did that you believe you might be on the spectrum yourself. Yeah. What, what's your? I don't want to say journey again because I already asked journey question. But so what's? But but, but what brought you to that idea? that You might be autistic. Because I think yeah. a lot of people would be interested in that.
2: Yeah. So my my eldest son, who's twenty, I was twenty now. He was diagnosed with ADHD when he was about twelve, and when he was diagnosed, um, the the pediatrician said to 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 me and his dad, you know. One of you is very likely ADHD too. That, you know, it's a very strong kind of like family um kind of uh, influence, if you like. And um, James's dad looked at me and went, "Well, that's you." <laughs> um, and you know, I I actually got my diagnosis during lockdown. Um, I think a lot of people kind of discovered a lot about themselves during that sort of lockdown period. Um so I, I got diagnosed with ADHD when I was um 46, I think. Yeah, 46. And that that was a you know a a real life-changing moment for me, like to get that diagnosis and to realise that, you know, I'm not stupid, I'm I'm not clumsy, I'm not disorganized, you know, I I had a lot of very negative feelings about myself um but then as I dug down deeper I realized that actually there's more to like my neurodivergence than just ADHD um you know I have incredibly strong um interests you know and that kind of that concept of monotropism is in you know I actually did a monotropism quiz the other day and I scored really highly on it but you know is it hyperfocus? is it monotropism i don't know but it, but it, i have these incredibly strong interests and i always have done you know as a, as a child like i would get incredibly engrossed in things and and would get kind of like distressed or anxious if i was taken out of those um i also have quite significant sensory needs like i'm incredibly sound sensitive um, you know, if I, I hear things and it it's like, oh, I can't bear it, like that certain noises, particularly, um, I also have realised that I have spent a huge amount of my life masking. Um, and I am very good at portraying myself as being this very kind of like confident, sociable person. But the anxiety that I get before, for example, I used to go to a party or I'd like I'd I'd be like, I should go to this party because I've got friends and they're going to want me there. But like I would literally be almost in tears with the anxiety that I experienced. Um, and again, now I don't put myself through that like. I got invited to a party a few months ago and i just said to my friend i'm really sorry i, I don't want to go like i don't really know anybody else there like, i would have made myself go to that party before so i'm such a people pleaser i wouldn't want to let my friend down um yeah just little things like how anxious i get about traveling like going on i was talking to someone today like i find going on holiday incredibly stressful like you know going to new places for example I practice conversations in my head before I have them with people. I visualize things before I do. Th- do you know what I mean? And it just all these puzzle pieces kept coming together. But I feel I feel really strongly, actually, though, that um, we are too. Um, what's the word? We're too focused on compartmentalizing people's neurodivergence. Like I just say to people, I'm neurodivergent. Um, you know, I, I think I'd find it really hard to to get to to have an autism assessment because I do autism assessments. I know exactly what they'd be looking for, so I think I'd I I'd probably hold back, thinking, oh no, I shouldn't do that because I know what they're looking for there.
0: Exactly, and so pathologized too, the how how they're written too.
2: Exactly. Um. So yeah, and and it's so funny because I, I would say now. Probably ninety percent of my friends are neurodivergent, and a, the majority of my friends have got an autism diagnosis. And they're all like, "Laura, you're so like you're autistic. Like, how can you not see that you are autistic? Like, they they all see it. Um, in fact, a lady that I work with who she has an autism diagnosis. And I've been working with her now for like eight years. Um, she said the first time she met me she because she came and approached me and asked if I'd be interested in working with her and we got on really really well um and the the first time I met her she said she went home and said to her husband oh I met this really nice lady called Laura today so I'm gonna do some work with her she's she's definitely autistic do you know though it's really interesting what you just said though Torin, because I think one of the things that stopped me understanding like my autistic sort of part of my neurodivergence. Is because I was delivering a lot of autism training, and what I can now see is a lot of that autism training was was very out of date. you know? because so I was delivering training on what I had learned about autism, but I wasn't learning it from the right people. and I was learning kind of a very med I was sort of at the time, and I'm talking years ago, but I was learning quite a medical model of autism, like even like things like, you know, thinking that I I couldn't be autistic because I'm a I'm I'm female like that just how old-fashioned that that view is now. But when I started doing my autism training twenty years ago, that was a message that I was being told. So I think I think me understanding myself better has also come from. Learning from other autistic people about actually what autism actually is, rather than from what I was being told it was. And so and So everything, yeah, everything was a bit out of date. But I also, I also think that the reason that you know, going back to what I was talking about originally, about sort of just walking into that classroom and just thinking, I'm, I'm home. This is where I'm meant to be was because I was so similar to so many of the young people that I was working with. And I think I could just relate to them and they could relate to me. So That's it's nice it's smile. it's helped me in a lot of ways.
0: And we get like, and you also see a lot that like, if your work you do involves autistic people, and if you're around a lot of autistic people, yet those people tend to be autistic themselves just because like attracts like. In fact, it's actually rare <laughs> yeah. that Stacy isn't on the spectrum. and yet what she does is work with autistic people. Though some of our, yeah. some of our listeners think you are, like I'm getting comments where they, where they're like, oh, it's I two know. autistic people. And I, like, I feel, I don't I, know whether to correct them or not. Cause I, like, I always
1: say, my parents will say that. Cause I'll explain something when their child does something. I'm like, oh, like, don't you get it? Cause I know when I do blah, 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 and I don't want, and they're like, are you autistic? I'm like, no, I'm not. I'm just very in tune to my sensory system. Yeah. I'm also very stubborn, like Stacy, does not follow directions well and never has. (laughs) And I'm fine with the consequences. But speaking of consequences, um, this book, you were talking about sort of just the transformative. This book I have put in the hands of parents, teachers, and not just teachers that are teaching children with a diagnosis. I think Mm -hmm. every teacher should read this book because it changes your perspective when you understand Mm -hmm. what other folks are at, how they're seeing um, things, because people just don't think about it. They really don't think about um, Mm -hmm. those little things that are required for masking, or just the subtle signs and, I, what I'm finding is it's forcing some of my educator friends to actually think about kids more, right? Whether they're autistic or not, it's okay. like, oh, wait a minute. Let me dig a little bit deeper into what's going on.
0: For those of you who can't see, Stacey's holding up a copy of uh, Laura Kirby's book.
1: The only book I brought, I brought two books to Mexico. <laughs> and this was one.
2: <laughs> oh, I feel very honored. It's the educator's experience. It's the educator's experience. <laughs> so sorry, we both did it. Pathological demand avoidance. Yeah, I, I'm. I'm so. That means a lot to me that you've said that because um, a few people have said that they've like actually everybody who works in education should read this book, which is a you know that's that's a huge compliment. But I, I think whether you're a parent or whether you are a educator the approaches that we we you know that I talk about in the book are to me it's like the gold standard like this is what I think we should be doing when we're parenting or teaching or supporting because it's such a respectful way of being with somebody like as a I I remember again going back to my time as a head teacher like there was um a boy in the school who was kind of considered one of the more challenging young people and I always got on really well with him and we went for a walk once he was having a difficult day and he said Laura he said you shouldn't be a head teacher he said because you're too nice and I was like oh you know thank you but those those children in that school they never ever saw me Mm -hmm. as a like scary authoritative Mm -hmm. teacher like they would they would come and knock on my door and say can I come and sit in here because mrs so-and-so is being a beep you know and I'd be like yeah my door's open come in why would you not be like that with the children and young people that you're working with like why why would you not why would you how sorry how do you expect young people to respect you and treat you with you know you know in a, in a nice way if you're not doing that to them and I i i absolutely hate it when i go into schools because i do a lot of observation work in schools and i it makes me mad when i hear adults talking to children like in a patronizing way or like in a am the boss i'm the teacher you're the child you should do what i say all children are going to respond badly to that approach so all children, you know, or most children are going to respond well to the opposite, and it's the same with parenting. You know, my my children are not PDA, but I've always, you know, always used a really, really low demand approach. You know, like I I know that my they're quite grown up now. I don't tell them when to go to bed, but when they were younger, if I went into my son's bedroom and said, "Come on, it's late. You need to go to bed." neither of my sons were the type that were going to go oh okay Mum night they're gonna like argue back and go oh, no i'm doing this or whatever if i go in and say hey it's getting late i don't you know you don't want to be too tired in the morning it'd be tricky to get up do you want to do you want me to come back in 10 minutes or should i come back in 20 minutes and turn the light up for you they're like oh 20 minutes please Mum. you know it's it's just a more respectful way of, of of speaking, and I and I think again, you know, when I'm when I'm doing a training on PDA, I always say that the the approaches that are so effective and helpful when you're supporting someone with PDA are good just for those children who are very, very anxious as well, because, you know, again, one of my sons has had a lot of problems with anxiety. Um, and when he was in, when he was feeling very anxious, he would become more controlling. So I had to allow him to feel that he was in control because if I, if I tried to take that control back, his anxiety would go higher.
1: I, the word I keep hearing is, you know, Torin said earlier, he didn't want to throw shade. I throw shade at, like, I've just gotten to the point where I've been doing this for 35 years. I'm no longer just like going to coddle you as an adult, like get it together or get out of the classroom.
0: Yeah. Stacy um, don't give a shit.
2: I've just
1: had enough.
2: (laughs) I like that. I like that. But the thing is, your your PDA children, they are like that as well. Mm -hmm. That's the thing. Like if they think you are at your job, they are going to tell you you are at your job.
1: The respect word is the word. I mean, I know there's all this, there's all these phrases now. I think there was something called Um, connection, not compliance. I'm like, oh, okay, that's what I've been doing. I didn't know there was a name for it. Now there's a fancy name for it. And it's really just respecting children as human beings. And like you said, it's giving that respect and they're actually willing to take on some challenges because they know that you respect them and you're willing to, um, how do I usually phrase this? They have an out if they need an out. If you really are struggling to do your math, I'm going to give you an out. And you let me know when you're ready, whether that's today, tomorrow, a minute. I don't really care. Right. So I think that the struggle is so many personalities of control go into the classroom and parenting cultures are about control. And I'm like, you're going to exhaust yourself. right? uh, and and I'll move on to my question because I really do want to ask a couple of things. But I was in a meeting and um, a behavior therapist asked me, you know, well, you said that you don't use splash cards and reinforcements. And I don't understand how you, do you your children must just do whatever you want to do. And I said, actually, my students actually tell me to be quiet so they can get more work done because they understand that i'm respecting them now i can get a little bit too fun in the classroom but i've built a relationship of mutual respect so i respect them they respect me so they're willing to do the challenge right they're willing to go with me on three digit addition even though it's really hard and one of the things that you write um one of the uh, things i highlighted was about the empathy right understanding that right now they just can't do it i don't care exactly. if they did it three weeks in a row right now they can't and so i think that one of the things that i i marked with that kind of segues into this is the change right like how do we what is the key to getting more educators parents as well but to 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 think huh I need to change what I'm doing because it's really not working. <laughs> like if you're yelling all the well, time, it's not working. Do
2: you know, funnily enough, um, I was writing about this yesterday. I, I, I have um, someone that helps me with my social media and she's away this week. So I'm, I'm having to do my own social media, but I write all my own posts anyway. But this week, I, yesterday, I basically wrote all my posts to, to put out for the week. And I wrote one about this, about... You know what? What are the ideal characteristics that you need to have if you if you're going to work with someone with PDA? And actually, going, you know, I I, I sadly think, and I'm just to be very very honest, that there are some people that are never going to get it. You yeah. know, there are some people that they are never ever ever going to change. Um, and and you're right, they're going to like exhaust themselves. They're going to burn out. They're going to end up absolutely hating their jobs. I think it's just about you know, in terms of how we get that change, I think it's going to be a slow change, but it's about not being scared to do something different. It's about like having that confidence to think this kind of again, I've written about this before, it kind of goes against the grain. It's like, you know, and when I wrote about this before, I said, when you first go against the grain, it feels rough and you get a few splinters and it, you know, it doesn't feel good but the more you go against the grain the smoother and smoother and smoother it gets and the the stuff i talk about in the book and the stuff i talk about when i'm doing pda training is not expensive i don't talk about a single resource in that book that you have to go out and buy there's not one thing it's about changing your perception it's about changing your language and i think you know the my book starts with a confession that PDA used to scare me and the reason it scared me was because I was doing everything wrong so it's about like accepting that actually this is going to be different this is going to like feel a bit weird when you first start doing it but the more you do it the easier and easier it will get and I think that will work on an individual basis but I think systemically more and more people will kind of realize that they can do that um I wrote about the other day I I get asked a lot what's the best school for someone with PDA like what's the best type of school and I said it's not a type it's like the ethos of the school it's the it's the nature of the school and and that also comes from you know you need a really sort of supportive um senior leadership team within that school as well so I think I think it's like it's like a kind of like you have to sort of suck it and see, and 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 when you do that, you think actually, this is working. This is better. So yeah. So in terms of change, um, I, I think it. I think it just people just need to have the confidence to do stuff differently. Basically,
1: I I love that you said that the confidence. Um, I remember having long time ago conversations with teachers, and they were like, well, you know, um, the principal said that we can't. I said, if you do what you need to do for your students and you are confident that you know what you're doing is right and it's working, mm-hmm. administration's not going to argue with children who are succeeding. You're not calling the office, you're not asking for help. The results will show and they'll back off and leave you alone. Now, your coworkers may not be nice to you, but you know, workplaces like kindergarten high school, I mean, that doesn't seem to change.
2: I I had a I had a teacher, they'll love this. When I worked in my school, I had a teacher complain about me because they said I was too student focused.
1: Oh, wow. It's a school. You're too student focused.
2: Too student focused.
0: It, it, isn't that the point?
2: Well, yeah. I mean, yeah. But, you know, I think it's because I was too busy to to talk to her about something that had happened to her. And I said, no, I I, I can't know. I'm supporting this student who needs me. But the point is, someone like that will never get it like
0: they're never going to get it you, you you are so much like stacy it's hilarious because stacy once I, I i've told a story before stacy once told me a story when she was working at an organization with some other uh counselors who work with autistic kids and uh one of the other counselors had complained and someone had told stacy well so-and-so thinks that you don't like her and stacy cut, cut her off and goes No, no no i don't like her but I can still
1: work with you I don't have to like you to work with you because we're here for the children it's not a sorority we're here for the children yes all right speaking of the children um so what I did was I tagged some of the illustrations uh that Eliza did um which are always fun So one of the things that I wanted to um, bring up was, and I know the listeners can't sort of see the picture, but when you get the book listeners, you will, is the direct praise. A lot of teachers and parents struggle with, well, you know, I'm giving them rewards or we have the treasure chest or which I'm so over the treasure chest. I'm just like, there's nothing in the treasure chest that's exciting. Like seriously, let's get over the treasure chest, right? I mean, it's not always that exciting. So, in the book, you mentioned things like praise can be painful, too much attention creates pressure. And I wanted you to talk a little bit about that. But I have to share a story of one of my new students this summer. And she is this delightful little um, eight year old. And she read her word problem for math. She just went in and read it on her own, said the answer, and figured it out. And I was like, whoa. <laughs> she said stop calm down <laughs> <I> said, <laughs> okay am I not supposed to get excited it's too much it's too much so I didn't so the next time she did something I made an adjustment and I was like and then she's like okay that's better that's better I'm like okay great because <laughs> I was excited so my point to that story is it did not take away from me being able to be excited as a teacher, I just had to make an adjustment, right, so that she was comfortable. And that's the message that I want our listeners to get. So I'd love for you to expand a little bit on that, because people don't understand why praise is not something every child gravitates to.
2: Yeah, yeah, I mean, I think, I think there's, there's a lot of reasons behind it. So again, one of the things I do in my training is I and I'm obviously training kind of adults and I I I ask that this is a question. I say, um why do you think individuals with PDA might struggle with praise? And people, you know, come up with really good answers. And then I, I pick on the person that's giving me the best answer. And I say, that was a brilliant answer. Honestly, I'm so impressed. I, I can't wait to hear what you're going to say next on this training. And then i say how do you feel now and they're like i don't want to speak anymore so it's 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 partly that it's like if you praise someone with pda for doing something it does set up an expectation that they're either going to do it again or they're going to even they're going to improve it um it also can feel really disingenuous like you know may, maybe that girl i don't know the young the young person that you're talking about but maybe to her it just wasn't a big deal it'd be it would be a bit like if I when I met with you guys this evening well my evening your afternoon if you had said Laura you know thank you so much for it's brilliant that you're here on time you know it's a, mate you're you're here on time even though the time difference think I'd be like don't patronize me like I'm like an adult I can like get myself places on time so if as a PDA if you consider yourself someone's equal and it feels like they're kind of like talking down to you with their praise, then it it feels patronizing and it can feel really disingenuous as well. So I think, and, and then things like, you know, when we praise with things like, you know, the treasure chest, the reward systems, certificates, they're usually pretty meaningless. Like, you know, like, again, I think it's mentioned in the book, but there's a a a, a mum that I work with who said that she went in to help her son clear his 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 tray out at the end of the academic year. And it was stuffed full of certificates that he'd got. And the mum was like, Wow, look at all these oh why didn't you bring them home? He was like, they're just bits of paper. Like he didn't care. So, you know, there are some children that just don't just don't care about those things. You know, the there's a a boy that, again, this is mentioned in the book, the first time I said, oh, good boy, he just looked at me and said, I'm not a dog. Mm -hmm. And it was like, you know, he was offended that Mm -hmm. I said good boy for that. So I also make those adjustments. So I will now say things like, I love that idea, or I would never have thought of that. Why did you, how did you come up with that idea? So it's about praising in a different way. And it's actually, again, it's more genuine. I think, again, I think that was one of the kind of, habits that i'd got into particularly working in the colleges before i kind of really understood pda more it was really drummed into me about praise 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 positive reinforcement positive reinforcement and sometimes it's just disingenuous. It just doesn't. Good job. Good job. Good, good job. job. High five. Every it's... time I hear that. High five.
0: Good,
1: yeah.
2: five.
0: Every
1: time I hear good job, I just want to go. Like, it could be like a drinking game watching social media um, and we'd all be drunk. But yeah. it's, it's like, what is good job? Like, good job on what? But it's all. But like you said, it's so disingenuous. I mean, it just. And I will say the thing that cracks me up is, uh, and this is my favorite one, where a friend of mine had a toddler, you know, they're like we wobbling, sitting up, or baby, whatever the age was. And so they roll this soccer ball, right? Now, the baby's not really moving. The soccer ball just kind of runs into the baby, and the baby gets excited. And they're like, oh, good job. And I'm like, they did
2: not do anything. (laughs) It was a mistake. Can I just say something, though, actually? That... When when praise is really genuine and it feels deserved, then it can be, I think yeah, it depends on the individual, um, but it has to be really like genuine and the person needs to feel like they actually deserve it. Because that's another thing. I, I work with a boy who um he actually um Hit a member of staff that was supporting him. He actually hurt them quite badly, and it was because she had given him a reward, and he was he was so angry. It was like I didn't I didn't do anything to get that reward. I don't deserve it. So I think it undermined all the stuff that he had been rewarded for before. If that makes sense, it was like you've just made everything that I've earned meaningless. Yeah. Yeah,
1: I think that you made a really good point in terms of it has to be important to the person, right? Mm-hmm. If somebody is not excited about certificates, then it's not going to be something that is. Um... In fact, you could call my mother and tell my mother that because I'm the unmotivated uh non-competitive child unlike my mother and so i never wanted to get stuff like Mm -hmm. recognized awards i'm just like oh whatever and my mother loves it and she it drove her crazy that i was not competitive which i know now it really wasn't about the awards or maybe it was but anyway i think that people need to recognize just because you find this exciting it doesn't mean your child is going to or your student is going to find it exciting or it's important to them um, my favorite phrase to parents is, "You know, your kids actually have independent thinking, and they don't automatically like everything that you like. I mean, they are surprised. They're like, 'What?'" I'm like, "Yeah, they just
2: don't like ketchup with their fries, and it's okay." <laughs> and and again with a with a PDA, that's going to be oh, really, you know because yes. they okay. they have this strong sense of autonomy and can be incredibly independent and don't you know in fact um I was reading something it was something I wrote about again sorry I wrote a post last week about um just suggesting to someone with PDA that they might like something can put them off it but yeah, there's 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 it's actually it was actually an illustration for the next book that Eliza and I are are working on at the moment for teenagers because there's nothing out there for teenagers with PDA. And it, it there's a brilliant illustration, I just love it. And it's um um a, a parent looking at a I think is there like in a bookstore and the parents like, oh you like this one, don't you? And the kids thinking, not now I don't. As soon as you impose it on me. I love that.
1: <laughs> <Not you. laughs> Oh my gosh, that's so funny. You just, like, you just put a thought in my head when I saw someone in the store with their toddler saying, you want one, don't you want one? And I was like, apparently he does not want (laughs) one. Stop trying to convince him he does. So speaking of trying to convince and demands, one of the illustrations talks about tolerance and demand. And one of the things that I find a lot of folks who are either new to PDA or are trying to understand PDA is... What a demand actually is, because I think that the perception of like it, you know, saying good morning is a demand because yep. then you have to say good morning back, right? And, and yep. folks don't realize that. So can you speak a little bit on um, demand and that tolerance, so that our listeners can kind of get a little bit of an idea of how that looks different for a PDA or than a non-PDA or if that's a yeah. Term. I
2: mean, you know, we again, this is something that I talk about in in training because we we put demands on in particularly in a learning environment we put demands on individuals all the time so the example of like saying good morning i actually know a boy who's who one of the things that he was struggling with the most about going into school was that the head teacher would stand on the gate and say good morning to all the children now that's you think that's a lovely thing to do like there's not many head teachers that go and stand on the gate and and do that and the children were expected to say good morning mr so-and-so and like shake his hand that was stopping that boy wanting to go to school um so you know it's things like that it's things like just just putting like work down in front of a child there's a demand you don't have to say this is the work you're doing they're just the fact the work is in front of them creates a demand that they're going to do that work yeah. um you know so I, I talk about the difference between direct demands which is when you you know you could say sit down and start your work that would be like a direct demand then there's um, it's time to start your work now is a is a more subtle demand, but it's it's more subtle, but it's still an attack on their autonomy. It doesn't feel less. Yeah. Then there's the the silent demand, which would either be putting the work in front of them or them just looking at a timetable. Um, and then there's the self-imposed demand, which is when the young person themselves knows I should be doing this work or I should be doing this work, you know, to a certain standard all of those things will be perceived as demands and what we have to understand about pda is that demands are basically an attack on their autonomy so when somebody feels that they are under attack they're obviously going to have an anxiety-based response so the but the important thing to to remember though is and and again one of the myths about pda is that pda doesn't mean they're not going to do anything ever that's not that is not pda at all you know p d a means i I need to do this you know with autonomy or because there's something in it for me like I get something out of doing this um but absolutely like if you if you sort of refer back to that bucket analogy in the in the book as well yeah. the if you kind of think of the 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 bucket filling up with anxiety the the bucket eventually runs out of capacity. Yeah. so that is why either as a parent or as a professional, there are going to be days when you think this has been a really good day, like this kid has done loads today. And there could be all sorts of reasons for that. But one of the reasons is going to be because their demand tolerance is higher that day because their anxiety is lower. But it could be that the next day that child is coming into school, the bucket is still quite full because it hasn't had a chance to kind of like empty the anxiety from the day before. It might have additional anxiety in there of like, oh, I had a really good day yesterday and I did loads of work and everyone's going to expect me to do that again today. So then the next day you could have a day when you think they haven't been able to, to manage any demands today. So that's why you, you have this kind of, you can have a real up and down. It might not be daily. It could be weekly. It could be monthly. You know, you, you have these real fluctuations. Um, but I, I think the most important part of what I've just said there is, you know, a, a demand is it is it, a threat. It's a, it's a, it to the yeah. PDA being told what to do. And in fact, I was right. I'm writing my PDA for teens book. Like that's what I've been doing today. When I was meant to be writing reports, <laughs> I'm I'm now in the flow of the book, which is what I was meant to be doing last week, but I couldn't. So when I'm back at work this week and I'm meant to be doing other stuff, I'm writing the book and i've been having these incredible chats with pda's teenage pda's who who like they are making this book so special and one the, one of the girls said to me like being told what to do is the worst feeling ever she said it 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 just makes me feel like i like i want i think one of them said actually it makes me want to gouge my eyes out being told what to do yeah so, a
1: lot. But, it's a lot. It's a lot. Um, and yeah, I think yeah. for our listeners, just to, to understand that it's a different feeling for PDAers than it is for,
2: for them. Yeah, it's it's not, you know, like someone someone said to me, well, I've had this a few times. Some Someone said to me once in training, well, no one likes being told what to do. That You know, I don't particularly like being told what to do, but I don't go to the lengths that somebody with PDA will go to to avoid doing what I've been told to do
1: and that's not actually true there are a lot of people who like to be told what to do they marry someone who tells them what to do yeah stay in their mama's house that tells them what to do they join the military that tells them there are a lot of people that like to be told what to do
0: even if they say they don't yeah exactly because like some people legitimately need that like they need they they need someone just to tell them stuff
2: Men, men, Torin, men, men need someone to tell them what to do. Torin, the male species. Oh, yes. but, it, but but actually, this is one of the real. That's this is actually a really important difference actually between um like demand avoidance of the the like the, the PDA sort of presentation yeah. of autism and a non-PDA presentation of autism because I I know some of my autistic clients that aren't PDA. They do need to be told what to do. Like they need that structure and that routine and that predictability and that they need to know like when I've done this, then I'm gonna do that. They need that. But mm-hmm. doing that to someone with PDA, that will increase their anxiety. Mm-hmm. And that's a really important difference.
1: Yeah. I think that people need to recognize that the difference. There's a difference, not everyone is the same. Um exactly. Yeah. I I, I give a lot of autonomy, but Everything gets done as well, because, I mean, when I say everything gets done, it's not like people are sitting in my classroom doing nothing.
0: (laughs) I could not picture a Stacy classroom where everyone did nothing. Like, just knowing you, I couldn't picture that.
1: Oh, my God. I'm probably the one that's doing nothing because I'm such a bad student. I mean, I just... Like to have fun. I was banned from libraries in college because I went to socialize and that's
0: I could see that. Yeah, you 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 you, you were one of those people while I was in the 24 hour study lab cramming for a test I had the morning, the next morning, you were probably the one having to hang out and make a mad noise and just being ratchet. I could see I could definitely see that. But um we're up against time. Uh uh Laura, is there anything any last stuff you'd like to say?
2: Oh, I don't know, really. I mean, I just, I just think um, the most important thing if you're going to work with someone with PDA is be authentic. Don't, don't try and be like someone else. Like, don't you know? Don't kind of like think, oh, I'm going to try and emulate this person who I've seen is really good with young people with PDA. Just be you. Like, just be authentic. Like, PDAers are the most authentic people you'll ever meet like they are like I love their way of looking at the world like there's no bullshit. it's like they just see things like in such a true light and that's what they need from you as well so yeah just 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 be authentic and and have fun with them like I laugh so much when I'm working with my children with PDA like they are hilarious like we just have so much fun um yeah i would be that teacher that people would like knock on the like look through the door and be like what is going on in this classroom it doesn't look like there's much work going on in here um and it, it but those young people were doing the work they were probably doing more work in that session around the kind of laughter and everything than they were doing in 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 other colleagues sessions when they were sort of sitting there in silence
1: so, i like
2: that um be authentic i like just that be authentic just be you yeah don't try and be something else because they'll just see through it. Yeah.
1: Oh, yeah. That's. I think the best part is there is no BS. I'm going to yeah. add one of my favorite illustrations is for folks to validate and empath- yeah. and have, and empathize because there's nothing more frustrating for a child, especially a teen, to have a valid feeling and everyone say,
2: oh, no, it's not that bad. I wrote about this yesterday as well, Stacey. One of my my pre pre reading uh, posts, you know. And, and again, I talk about it in the book. Like, you know, if I'm if I'm upset about something, I don't need someone to say, "Oh, don't be silly. It's not that bad. You'll be all right." That doesn't validate my my emotion in any way. It makes me feel completely invalidated. So yeah, it's about saying, yeah, I I need someone to say, yeah, Laura, I'd be really upset if that happened to me as well. Or better still, yeah, that when when that happened to me, I was fuming. So I know how you feel. So that is true empathy. Um you you know, we 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 have to do and and again that's something that's really, really important. I think not just for PDAs but for anxious children. The, The example I wrote about in this this post that I'm will put out this week was about if you've got a child that's saying they're too scared to go to a party for example, which a lot of kids, my, one of my children used to get really anxious about parties and i just say, oh, you'll be fine when you get there. What is that actually, what, what do you actually, what, you, what are you helping that child with? What are you actually teaching them you're not?
0: When you say you're going to be fine, what I found is when people say that it's because they're reassuring themselves. Because like, you're going to be fine as in, I need you to be fine because I'm stressed out and if you get stressed out, I'll get more stressed out. So it almost makes me laugh when people say that now. It's an, it annoys me, but it almost makes me laugh because I'm like, you, you could just communicate as an adult human that you're stressed out. You could just do that, but instead you're choosing to speak in this weird, like, empty platitude code that I, I don't know.
2: And again, it's inauthentic, isn't it? Because you don't know that they're going to be okay when they get there. You're you're lying. Actually, you're not being you're not being authentic.
1: Yes i agree this
0: has been so good laura thank you
2: thank you it's lovely to see you again
0: thank you for coming on again we'll have all the links to your stuff in the description this was just as much fun if not even more fun the first episode and it's great and when you're done with your next book we'll definitely have you back on again
2: this is it's nearly done it's nearly done this is the like the rough copy here that i'm working on so yeah and i'd love to come back
0: Congratulations. congratulations just 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 let us know just just let us know send us a Thank message you. and we'll set it up and stacy that's why we're working to
1: shift the narrative on everything autumn. see ya